We are continuing with Matthew. I, I'm going to give some brief context in this passage, but I really want us to have a conversation here about what is the relevance in even being devoted to God, following God, calling yourselves a Christian, etc. I think we live in a time where we used to say we do these things because it's either expected of us or demanded of us, etc. It kind of came from an authority place. And that just doesn't hold the same weight in our world anymore. People don't have to belong to a church or believe in the divine if they don't want to. And there's really nothing anybody can say um, that would alter that for them. And, you know, here at Unorthodox, we don't really subscribe to the idea that we do this because it gets us to heaven after we die. Or we do this because God demands it of us. I especially want unorthodox to be a space where we wonder about things very openly. And it's okay if we come to a conclusion that maybe is not what's traditional or expected. Um, I think actually that's probably what helps our faith grow, grow stronger. So we'll get into that. That's kind of the point of today. Uh, we start with this story in Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. And he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. So context of this story, so I'm going to kind of go through this quickly. I want us to have more time to just chat. Um, as we have been the last few weeks, this part of Matthew's gospel is in the last week of Jesus' life. He is in Jerusalem. He has already gone into the temple and flipped the tables and chased out the moneylenders and taken this kind of stance against uh, the Jewish temple leaders' collusion with Rome. And it's the next day, and, and people are upset, and they're trying to trap him and get rid of him, etc., um, and Jesus has kind of railed against these temple leaders uh, about their, uh, their neglect of their responsibilities. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. So then, then they decide to have this trap where they ask him this question, is it right to pay taxes or not? Um, and, and right, this is like Americans' favorite Bible verse, right? Um, What's really going on? So we have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Herodians obviously being followers of King Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas being the son of Herod the Great. It's weird that Herod Antipas is here because he actually is not a king over the region that Jerusalem is in. He's a king in the region where Galilee is, where Jesus initially comes from. And the reason he is the king is because Rome has made him to be the king just like they made his father the king. Um, he benefits directly from this relationship with Rome. He's received land that belonged to other Jewish people from Rome. Um, and so it's in Herod's best interest to make sure that the peace is kept with Rome. And Jesus is starting to upset that peace. 
Uh, so the Herodians there, the Pharisees are there who have a tremendous amount of influence in this kind of a worldview, and if bad things happen with Rome, they would lose that influence. And so there's this benefit to things just being what they are. And again, Jesus is starting to rock the boat. And the best way to get rid of Jesus is to have him immediately arrested uh, with a very clear-cut um, treasonous statement against Rome. And so they ask him this question, uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Now notice they don't say, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And when you look at the Greek, it's talking about a very specific tax in this time. We would call it a poll tax, uh, but it was a tax that was levied against all conquered territories by Rome, Judea and Galilee being two of those territories. The coin that people had to pay, this denarius, it had a picture of the current emperor on it, Emperor Tiberius. And uh, when Rome would conquer a territory, they would flood their money into that territory. They would flood their economic system into that territory. They would take local leaders and elevate them into positions of authority, making them wealthy. Um, and part of what that territory had to do to ensure peace was pay a tax, this specific tax to Rome. And everybody, every man from about the age 14 or older had to pay this tax once a year. Because it was a spread out territory, the best way to do that with efficiency was to do it when people would gather in one area, typically throughout the year anyways. So this is Passover. This is a time when most Jewish people throughout Galilee and Judea are in the same place. And so it only makes sense for them to collect this tax. One of the places that they're all flooding to is the Jerusalem temple. And so that's where they're paying the tax. Instead of Rome using its own people, its own resources to collect that tax, they use the temple leaders to collect that tax. And so when Jesus actually goes into the temple and starts flipping over tables, what he's disrupting is that tax collecting system. Um, I think a lot of us grew up with this idea that Jesus was just upset that there was some kind of commerce happening here or something like that. Um, Really what's happening is he's upset that, that the Jerusalem temple is being used to collect this tax by Rome. And so there's a very complex system happening, and it's kind of a balancing act. I, as I was kind of preparing this, I even started thinking, you know, we always look at, like, the Pharisees as the bad guys. But what if they're the guys who are like, hey, can we just keep the peace so that we don't all die? Almost kind of humanizes them a little bit. Like, they realize, hey... If, if you guys mess up, like, Rome can come and just absolutely take us out. And maybe that's bad, because I'd like to live. So can we all just, like, chill out, and then here's Jesus. Like, nope, not going to do that. Um, and so this tax was a reminder for people that, one, they were conquered. Two, if they stepped out of line, they would pay the consequences. It was a reminder every year of what this relationship was that they did not have ownership of their lives and they had to go into this agreement that they really didn't have a choice in. And if they stick with that agreement, they get to live. But if not, they will always have this occupying force over them. And so according to Matthew's version of the story, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians come in and they pose them this question, is it lawful to pay this, this poll tax? Is it lawful to participate in this system? And this... 
this kind of comes off as though it's a a simple a simple trap that they're setting for Jesus, but there's this very human element to it. When you think of the common people in Jerusalem in this time, these are impoverished people who probably only make enough money to support them and their families for a day, and they're probably upset at what's going on, and Jesus has garnered this reputation as a man of the people. I mean, you look at the Beatitudes, for example. Blessed are you who are poor. The Beatitudes are a sermon specifically for all of these people who find themselves at the bottom of this social ladder. Jesus has gotten a reputation for being a man of the people. There was another group that were considered men of the people as well. These were the Zealots. I'm sure some of us have heard about. Um, Reza Aslan wrote a book called The Zealot. It's a terrible book. Don't read it. He's absolutely unqualified to write anything about uh, that stuff, but it really it, it, it became popular and people started realizing there was this zealot group in this time and these were the, the Jewish guerrilla warfare guys. These were the ones who wanted to attack Rome um, in secret and try to disrupt everything they could and so they were considered to be people the men of the people as well uh, we have a story of Bar uh, Barabbas right? When Pilate brings out Barabbas, who do you want me to release? Uh, scholars don't believe Barabbas was an actual historical figure, but um, Barabbas was in jail for insurrection. So that character, he was probably a zealot, uh, not just some common thief or bandit or something like that. Um, and, and actually, I think that's even in the Gospel of Matthew. The way that the Gospel writer is talking about that story is when faced with some, with, when faced between the choice of releasing violence back into the world, that's who Barabbas stands for, or Jesus, this radical person of nonviolent love, what do the people choose? And the people choose violence. Um, it's, it's, we'll get into that once we get back into Lent. But um, I, I just share that to kind of bring out where the zealots stood in this time. And I really want to highlight this kind of binary that the Pharisees and the Herodians are trying to place Jesus into. By asking him, do you support this tax? What they're asking him is, what side of the binary do you take? Do you support revolution against Rome? Or do you support complicity and probably safety? Now, if Jesus chooses complicity, he risks his reputation with the people, which his whole reputation is based on. If Jesus chooses uh, revolution, he risks being arrested right then and there and being crucified. And so Jesus doesn't step into this binary. He actually has this kind of humorous response. Um, he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Now, again, I think throughout our culture as Americans, this has kind of been shared with us in two different ways that are, I, I, would, I would say are both incorrect. One. Uh, it's been used to lift up separation of church and state. And don't get me wrong, you've heard me say it, I believe in separation of church and state, but the way it's been framed for us is there is this civic life that you lead, this civic life that you choose to be involved in or choose not to be involved in, and then there's this religious life and they don't cross. The religious life does not bear witness to that civic life at all. It's not. A, it shouldn't be a commentary on it. It shouldn't talk about how you navigate it. That religious life is really about this kind of private separate thing and getting you to heaven after you die. So don't worry about what's going on in our world. 
because this is completely separate. And I would say that that's wrong. It's a wrong understanding of this text. Uh, the other one is, do you pay taxes or not, right? And of course, Jesus says, pay, pay your taxes. Come on, what are you doing? Pay your taxes, shut up, stop complaining. <laughs> um, and again, I mean, that's not really what Jesus is doing either. And so this kind of funny thing is, Jesus is making his commentary like, look, the coins were made by Rome. They have the emperor's picture on them. Just give back what the guy made for you. Just give it back to him. Who cares? But then he has this sentence that really strikes at the heart of it. Um, and that is give to God what is God's. And that's what I want to focus on today. I really want us to think about what does that even mean for us? What is God's? What does it mean to give to God what is God's? I think one of the reasons the Herodians and the Pharisees get so angry at Jesus is because in a way he's calling them out. He's telling them, you are not giving to God what is God's. You're actually participating in the opposite of that with this relationship with Rome. That's not us. We're not the Pharisees and the Herodians. But that question there is still prevalent for us today, I think. What does it mean to give God what is God's? How do we determine this question? Is this question even relevant for us? That's a big one I'm wondering. Do any of us even feel like we should give to God anything at all? I would say as a pastor, I would never tell you that you need to give God anything. I would hope that that's a question you contemplate for yourself and come to your own conclusion about. I have an answer to that question for myself. I give to God what I think is God's because I choose to, because it bears witness and benefit in my life, and I think it makes the world a better place. And for me, it has absolutely nothing to do with where I go after I die. But I don't feel like I have the authority to tell you that as well, which gives us the perfect space to wonder about it together, right? So when we think... Give to God what is God's. I think the first thing there is that, well, what is God's? For those of you that grew up traditionally in church, what do you think the, the churches you grew up in would say to that? Tuck money. It's <laughs> an easy one, right? <laughs> a specific amount of tithe. Like 10%? Yep. Yeah. God, if I could just get 10. Yeah. If I could get 4%. <laughs> <laughs> Some people oh, might not sure, hurt yeah. some other people, right? Yeah. So what one person might be sitting out there saying, oh, that's easy for me to do. I've got millions. And somebody might say, I don't. But it's not the value of, of what, what you give. It's, you know. Um, but some people might hurt more than the other. Well, the tithe, I mean, there's a whole thing I go into with tithing. When we look at the, the time of Jesus, what was the tithe? The tithe had nothing to do with, like, money coming to the church so the church could function. A tithe had to do with the fact that there was a priestly class that was not allowed to have a job other than be priests. They were not allowed to earn an income. The only way they could survive was on the tithe that people brought. And so what, you're do what people in antiquity are doing is they're taking care of the priests who were the mediary between the people and God. And I mean, that was it. It was just simply subsistence living for that. And then we come into consumerist America where, you know, Joel Osteen shows up and is like, hey... I need a plane. What's up? <laughs> um, I don't, yeah. 
I, I, for me, I think another one historically within our time, give to God what is God's, I would say it's your allegiance. And then that allows somebody to control what that allegiance looks like, right? Because we never really fully define any of this stuff. Give to God what is God's, all right? You got my undoubted allegiance. And then we have to wait for the church, whatever church it is, to tell us what that then looks like. Yeah, Steve. But also, there's an implied separation between me and God because uh, I'm going to give God something. Um, and I guess I don't believe in that separation in a way. I, you know, in, in, uh, when I was growing up, we talked about uh, is God transcendent or imminent? And many people would say he's transcendent, obviously, because he created everything, he knows everything, he's everywhere. Um, and so the idea that God is in everything, including you, me, and the plants, was pretty foreign. But I feel like more and more, I feel like God is, the divinity that I feel in me is more and more imminent than transcendent. So the idea that I'm giving something to something separate from me um, feels strange. Hmm. I, like, I mean, and that's why I'm, yeah, that's why I'm asking this, because that authority of, of, of days past where you don't really get to wonder about that question, that, that authority is not necessarily there anymore. You can now wonder about, why should I give to God what is God's? What is God's that I'm giving? Is this even relevant anymore? So to kind of frame that, just to go on, I've, I've written a couple, so I have one statement here, but then I have several questions for us to kind of think about. There's the way I can answer this, right? So I have this list right here, and I pulled this specifically from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if we're going to say, if we're going to ask the, the Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, what does it mean to give God what is God's? Jesus doesn't talk about tithing in this. This is what I would say this part of Scripture tells us is the answer to this question. There, I, you could probably find ten random pastors who would say something completely different than what I'm about to say. Um, and they would all be wrong, because I'm right. <laughs> uh, actually, I would be very open to that kind of interpretation, because I, I don't want us to step into like any kind of a sense of um, this is a resolved question, right? So in Matthew's Gospel, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which is entirely focused on uh, this, this complete um, flipping on its head value system that is the opposite of the world, right? Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who, are, who mourn. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about humility being a value that we should have, forgiveness. Uh, throughout Matthew's Gospel, Jesus repudiates the accumulation of wealth. Uh, do not judge, lest ye be judged. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This egalitarian commensality that we talk about all the time, especially with the wedding banquet last week of this, this banquet table is a space not, not only where all are gathered, but where those on the social margins are actually invited in first and take the higher seat. Um, a a countercultural value system of, of abundance. We talked about forgiveness, right? And, and the pain that can come with forgiveness, but forgiveness is actually not without accountability. And then for Jesus, there is very much this devotion to God, but it's devotion to God through praxis, through how we Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Your devotion is shown in how you love each other. 
And so give to God what is God's. I would say what Jesus means by that is how we live into this value system and try to proliferate it. It's really not about money. It is about allegiance and devotion. But, it, but Jesus really spells out what that devotion and allegiance looks like. This is not about looking to the authorities to answer this question for you. I mean, in this moment, Jesus is actually critiquing those very authorities, the Pharisees, who are supposed to be telling people what Torah means for them. And so that's, that's how I would say Jesus answers this question. Give to God what is God's. Here's all of this stuff that we as followers of Jesus are called to do. Now, as I say that out loud, then I think to myself, well, so what? I, and I really want you to think about it. Why should you live that way? Right now, this is rhetorical, but why? Does it benefit you? Do you think it's going to get you something at the end of the day? What's the point of actually living this way in our lives? So as we think about that question, give to God what is God's, and all the questions I just keep throwing at you. I want us to think about these areas because we live in a time where authority figures, authority places try to answer this question for us. And so for you, what do, and, and uh, yeah, I'm a religious leader, but what have religious leaders told you growing up? What religious leaders do you see in media, etc.? How How do they answer this question, negatively or positively? This is not a rhetorical question anymore, sorry. <laughs> I would say that uh, uh, there was an underlying current of, of judgment when I was growing up that um, there certain people were uh, in and certain people were out. It depends on how what your belief system was. It wasn't really ever said to me that way, but I think um, the idea that if you're not a believer, uh, then you wouldn't be invited to heaven. So there was this underlying division between there's others created it was it's that that was the that was the care how i would characterize um, some of the underlying negative part of my my um, back, religious background and on the other hand some uh, wonderful sunday school teachers did communicate to me and my dad who's an atheist um, that all of what Jesus was talking about, humility, forgiveness, love, that would be the payment um, just as by virtue of being a human. Um, and that's, that's about it. I like that. That gives you stuff to wrestle with growing up. What else? I would say obedience and compliance. To what? To God. church or whatever rules they have in place. So that's then uh, kind of relegated to whatever that particular place is telling you? I would say so. Yeah. They're representing God or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and your experience with that was enough that you walked away from it, if I'm correct, right. right? Yeah. So then that becomes an authority that you no longer trust. Right. Steve? So I have a quick story out of my own life. Uh, many years ago, I'm walking around in the Berkeley Hills, and I'm looking at these absolutely lovely homes. 
with just incredible views. We're thinking, wow, that is a lovely home. Those people must be so happy to live there. You know, I'll never have that, but I'm happy they're living there. And then I had this kind of vision that, well, the home doesn't know that. The home doesn't know it's owned. None of these homes know on their own that they're owned. The only place that resides is a thought in my head, our collective thought, that these people own that home, and I don't. And I think that what you see in antiquity is this evolution of the um, idea and the philosophy of ownership, that some people own stuff, other people don't. And that it shows up here, you know, so if you ask yourself, what is my relationship to the divine? What am I to owe? Well, you have to ask, what do I own? What is it that I own? And how do I think about ownership? Yeah. Thanks, Steve. That, that's an, an added way to think about this. What does culture say? I think culture is maybe the more influential force here for us. Uh, what, is culture, what has culture told you in regards to giving God what is God's? Church culture or popular? All of it, yeah, whatever you think of. I think like, for popular culture, it's more of like the Joel Osteen, like you're, you're a sucker if you give to the church because obviously it's going directly into the pastor's pockets. And then I think that is, you know, um, anyone outside of church world would just think you're throwing your money away and that's ridiculous. Um, like within the church, I mean, we grew, we grew up uh, very much like you, you give out of um, necessity uh, it just—it was part of how you worshipped God, like you obedience. You you gave you you took offering and then uh, you took communion and then you gave offering. Like there was like a trade off between those two things of receiving a blessing from God and giving something back, type of thing. Um, I'm in my early twenties. I got. So sucked into that thought of the prayer of Jabez book where there's so in in the evangelical world there's this book this little tiny this small book about the prayer of Jabez where uh, it was basically saying if you tithe if you're giving 10% then you're going to get rewarded back like it was a very um it was very transactional. It was very much, oh, if you want to get ahead in life, you have to, you want a better job, you want to raise, start tithing, and this these things will come to you. Prosperity. Prosperity, yeah, yeah, very much so. But it, it all hinged on, are you willing to give to God? Because then God will be willing to give to you. So there was a lot of that in within church culture. It was a very uh, selfish way to look at the giving any kind of offering. It's like, well, I really need a different car, so I'm going to start tithing, and then hopefully 
I'll get a raise and be able to afford it. And you know, it, you know, as a 20-year-old, it's like, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. And then like, I got older and realized, what am I doing? What was I doing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that that's kind of. Uh, I like that. We keep going back to uh, like tithing with this question too. Um, also, what about just like your daily living, your actions in daily life? What what is meant to give? Give God what is God's in your daily living growing up. Maybe as a woman or uh, mm. a member of a certain church. Then, you know, we need someone to teach Sunday school. Mm. It's obviously your job as a young woman to step in and do that. We need someone <coughs> to lead vacation Bible school. They weren't asking you to think about becoming the pastor? <laughs> uh, never. Ne no, well, there would be, there would be the, the children's program leader. And that was kind of like the height of what a woman could aspire to yeah. within working in the church. And then Kelly came along and shattered that glass ceiling. Yeah, Kelly. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> we had yeah. summer work. Each of each of those daughters of, of the family were leading in ministry in some way. And, and I, was, I realized that. I was like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. And I asked my dad, I'm like, dad, what do you think? We need like daughters who are leading in ministry. And he goes, I feel like a pioneer. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I think um, it just kind of snuck up on him. Yeah. yeah. So my sister has her doctorate in Old Testament theology. Think of maybe religious culture, but you know, think about maybe the baseball player who hits a home run and as he's getting up to home plate, makes a sign of the cross and points up to God. <laughs> um, or Tim Tebow. Or uh, Kim Kardashian who wears a cross uh, in every episode I've ever seen. And I'm not trying to disparage those people by any means, but that's an element of culture. And so what does that say about giving God what is God's? my world, I don't see that the ideals of God are ever in my consciousness. Um, it's a, what I see when I'm watching television or just in my neighborhoods or whatever, it's uh, feels like a relic of um, a, a sweet idea, um, but very seldom a basis for decision making. Um, unless it's something controversial in politics, but I very seldom have anyone in um, any place I go say, hey, why don't we think about the best way, what is the most generous way to approach this solution, or um, anyway, engaging in an ideal that is other than just our materialistic world. I don't, you know, but so for me, I don't, 
unfortunately, I wish it was more guiding uh, what we, how we look at things and see things. I think that speaks volumes. Um, uh, a friend just sent me an article from The Atlantic about, and the, the title of the article is, Why is, How Has America Become So Mean? Um, and there's, huh? So what has America become so mean? How has America become so mean? Mean. It's in the Atlantic. And I was only able to read a snippet. I've got it saved to read it later. But the part that I read said that, um, you know, essentially, we used to live in a way where the organizations we belong to tried to teach us morality. Uh, so you think of like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, right? The Boy Scouts, I will do my best to do my honor to give to go to my own country or something. And was uh, was Cody in the Eagle Scouts? Was he? You might know some of those. Jamie, were you in the Girl Scouts? You might know some of those things that you had to say at the beginning of each meeting is better than I do, but it was really about morality towards, one, towards God, but also towards your fellow human and towards creation. Uh, there was this emphasis on morality. Same with like Rotary Club, Elks Clubs. Um, they all had these emphases on, on actual morality, and those dissipated starting after World War II until they're in many ways not really um, around anymore or not attended very well. And what kind of filled in that gap of morality was political ideology. And so then you could be passionate about your political ideology without ever actually having to do anything. And so if you're passionate about your political ideology, whatever side you're on, it enables you not to physically be involved. Now these organizations like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Rotary and stuff like that, these things where you start every meeting off saying whatever your pledge is, your motto, et cetera, you then had to go out and do it. You didn't just say it and then walk away. You actually had to go out and learn those tools and do those actions. And political ideology was different. It enabled people to say that they believe something, even passionately, but then they don't actually have to step in and do anything. It. it gave them the auspices of living that out without actually doing it. And I kind of, especially with what you're saying, Denise, I wonder if that's kind of what happened. I could wear a cross uh, necklace. I could say that I'm a Christian, and then maybe just by saying it or wearing the cross, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and I don't actually have to do it anymore. Can you hand that? Yeah, I, I think I saw the author being interviewed on TV about that. I remember that. And he was basically saying, you know, many years ago, our, like our comedy series would, would have a, a, a story to it where somebody would do something wrong and then eventually that person would apologize and the family would continue on with some resolution and some, some moral to the story. He says that's been replaced by TikTok. You know, just just quick, you know, episodes that that are like I can do this really bad thing and I can get a lot of attention, but I'm not going to give you a moral to apologize or anything like that. It's just like in your face. And he said our our, our new society is watching that and saying I don't need to apologize. I just do these things and behave the way I want, and there's no uh, there's no uh, you know results of my bad behavior uh, so we so we don't learn from how we need to work as a family to stay together as a family we're now in this uh, in this world where we just do things automatically and whatever happens happens 
so maybe then so. with that question, give to God what is God's, if we say, well, it's just allegiance, you know, I, at least I'll, I'll, if I can claim it publicly, um, then, then I'm exempt from, from the follow-through. Mm-hmm. Marcelino, you're in. Well, in terms of this question of culture, what comes to mind is, is nature saying that God is dead and that we have killed God, right? And, and so God is dead in our postmodern world. And instead, we have gods and celebrities that are the gods. And I think that's what our culture is teaching today, is to become an influencer, get a profile on TikTok, uh, get social media attention, and become a god uh, in our culture. You have Kanye West, who's uh, is a Christian. Um, and But it's just like, it's just being part of the in-group of, of Christianity. So you can wear the relic, <coughs> be part of the in-group because there's power associated with it. But when you look at the actual practices or uh, values, they're contrary to, to the Beatitudes, the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's contrary to that. It's all about self-interest, like Joel Goldstein. It's, it's just about self-interest and making yourself a God, your prosperity consciousness. Um, so that, that's how I see these questions. And in contrast to that, like on a personal daily basis, you know, Martin Luther King comes to mind where what he was teaching is that um, the, the beloved community, that everybody is a child of God and everybody is welcome and there's equity and there's care and compassion. Um, and that's, that's what moves me. And so on a daily basis or a weekly basis is, you know, I try to reflect personal level, where can I do better in terms of my relationships at work, family, friends, in the world, um, because that to me is giving back to God what has been given to me, this life, this gift, this treasure, and all the things that we've been given, um, what we make use of them with, and how we give them back to others, and how we build a beloved community with others, because at the end of the day, I mean, set aside like I have no idea <laughs> you know I've never had that experience of heaven um, to be able to answer that you know as somebody who's uh, a Christian uh, who could say I believe in heaven I'm, I'm dying to go to heaven it's like no I actually don't know that Yeah, I can't answer that but what I do know is um, this is I, I do kind of believe though that if we follow uh, stewarding given to us, taking care of our community and others, that we are taken care of. And that's as much as we can trust. Yeah, I like that. You're really approaching this from a very personal place. I like that. That's, yeah, that's, that's a counterpoint, and I hear you. I agree, Marcelino. Let me use the example of Pope Francis, who is not a traditional, diagonal, hardcore, patriarchal Catholic. Go Jesuits, right? But look what he is trying to do suddenly and quietly, in the same way that the Dalai Lama is trying to shed some light in some interesting places. When you listen carefully to how they are approaching the gospel, and certainly 
when I think about this question, that's where I go. Mm -hmm. um, what does science tell us about giving to God what is God's? I also think about stewarding the environment in that way. Um, we talked a lot about Lost Connections book in this, which is heavily based in um, neuroscience and, and, and how people feel fuller and happier in this life and why we're experiencing so much depression and anxiety in our world today. Um, what is scientific thought about, say, about this give, give to God what is God's? Do, Steve? Well, it occurred to me while we were talking a little earlier that what you mentioned how it seems like there's less and less faith and fewer and fewer people are faithful, something, anyway, or religious. And I was thinking, the only way for a human being to be faithless, truly faithless, is to be uh, psychopathic or sociopathic. That, and that you could, you know, or to be so depressed uh, that you're um, very depressed. And so I think that faith is actually who we are wired to, we are wired to have faith in each other, in this world, and perhaps in, and in, a, in a deity or in, in something more than ourselves. And when we lose that, when we choose to move away from that, um, I think we move in a very, um, from a neuroscience and psychological viewpoint, in a very dangerous and unhealthy direction. Okay. So for you, scientific thought points to... I'm sorry? For you, scientific thought points yeah. to... Yeah. Psychology, neuroscience. Faith, people are that. people of faith in something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that we see that in um, uh, Johan Hari's book, mm -hmm. Lost Connections. The psychopathy of, of not being connected to one another, of not helping one another. Okay. Yeah. Scientifically, the brain endorphins get very excited when you do good things. Um, I can remember uh, serving dinner at a homeless shelter and just coming away feeling like just fantastic because these people were so appreciative and so nice and they each had their own story and it, it felt good to, to, to help them. And so I felt good by just merely doing something like passing out food. I, I got more rewards <coughs> than they got. You know, from that, and so, so the brain gets you know happy. You know, you feel better doing the right thing. Well, like I didn't think of that. that that's so obvious, right? It's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially at this church, you know, uh, giving food to uh, people in need at any time, anybody is really. Uh, that was the thing that brought me to this church. Was when I passed, I went, wow. You know, they are really doing some great things here you know, for the community. So, uh, and, and, and it made me feel good when I came here to even find out more of the good things this yeah. church does, yeah. so. Thank you. So I'm asking these particular questions, maybe if you're wondering these one, two, three, four areas, because I think these are the primary authorities in our lives. These are the things that we allow to tell us how we answer this question. And Becky, the question is, what does it mean to give God what is God's? And so I think really we live in a time where we rely more on our own personal intuition now. And maybe that intuition is based off of what these other areas say to us. But at the end of the day, for those of you in this room right now, what does your intuition say to you about what it means to give God what is God's? Are 
had said. Um, and I think intuitively that makes sense to me. Like God is in each of us or the world, the trees, the butterflies, etc. Um, but I'm still here thinking like, what is God? Like I'm confused. Like I, I imagine in my mind it's like, Almost like a cloud, you yeah. know. I'm the pastor with a master's degree. I don't. I can't answer that question either. Yeah. I still think about it all the time. It's just our imagination. I, I, I can't answer it concisely, but I, for me, it comes back to that connection that we know exists. So it's kind of also that scientific thought. Like we know we live in an ecological system where every element of life is dependent on itself. Right? And we know that human beings are acting in this world in such a way that we're having a detrimental effect on life. I mean, scientists now call this the Anthropocene age because human beings are the primary factor in what's happening in our globe. It didn't used to be that way prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, and so humans used to have this arrogance that we could control life and survive it. And we're now realizing that because we live in an ecological system, the things we do could actually ruin our ability to even exist here anymore. And I don't think that that interconnection is random for me. For me, that's God. And then when we look at the cosmos and we start to examine string theory that says that there is 11 dimensions and we're only able to understand the bottom three of those, or that quantum entanglement exists so that what happens in this part of the universe immediately affects something in this part of the universe. I can't think that that's random. But I still can't define it either. I, I almost go back to like, what, 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 what would my grandfather say if he came back and, and heard about artificial intelligence? He couldn't even imagine something like that could happen, right? I mean, I can't even fathom it today, but grandfather who was, you know, how, how would he, you know, and where will we be in a hundred years from now? You know, there's things that I couldn't even imagine that they're going to know in a hundred years from now, what I don't know. Every time I'm amazed at, you know, like for example, you drive down the road and it tells you exactly where you're at and you can drive a car. What if he came back today and saw a car driving around without somebody in it? You know, things that we can't even imagine back in his time, we can't imagine now, or let's say a billion years of, of what you know might be. Um, there's just some things we just can't fathom. You know, like you said, the 11, 11 uh, dimensions, uh, which they've proven, you know, uh, you just can't, you can't figure it out. But there's, we see in three dimensions, but with what he's saying is there's 11 dimensions out there. And, uh, we, we just can't, you know, even figure it out because our minds can't wrap around that. I do like the idea of, like, God's, I mean, out there, yeah, but also in here. Yeah. Like, instead of searching or, like, God's actually within. And it's interesting if you think about, like, we're interconnected or, you know, maybe that's where God is. Then is that, like, in the relationship? piece of it, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's interesting. It is. 
And I also think if human beings suddenly realize the depth of our interconnection to all life around us, including the life of this planet, and tomorrow we decided to live that way so that our economy became our ecology, would the world become a better place? And I think uh, a resounding yes. Uh, Becky and then Grant. Um, when we talk about God as, you know, as, as interconnection, or our interconnection, and God as a cloud, if we all connected together are what is, you know, if we are the unity, then we would, with the, to the question of what does it mean to give God what is God's, then we just need to give. And it doesn't matter to whom or to where. We need to love and we need to give. Because whatever loving and giving we do benefits all of us. And we're connected that way. Say that again, Denise? So it reflects your experience of God. Yeah. So then you have to have that experience of God. I think that's important too. Yeah. Oh, uh, for me. As someone who um, uh, did not go to the church at all, um, but having been from Marina, I've done some really good drugs. But <laughs> to me, God is constantly yes. feeling conscious, me feeling it's personal, and not that I learned this through a book or through mentors or, or other people's opinions. Just for me, it's skip to the last question just because we're at time and, 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 and it's really this, this last question is really the question for today what's the benefit why do it I think we've flirted with that some of us but and because I especially for an orthodox you choose why you come to this space um, you choose why you stay here and I think part of that is what really what's the benefit then? Why do you do it? Because I don't think I don't think any of us are here because we grew up in the church and we were told that the church demands our attendance. Because I grew up going to church and I was told that the church demands my attendance. And that part still exists in me. But I've been very intentional about creating an Orthodox so that it didn't have that um, part to it. And I and I think it's kind of gone that way. You're here because you choose to be here. 
Uh, and so that question, give to God what is God's, whatever you come up with, why? That's an important one. What's the benefit? And I have my answer to that question. For me, like, just the, the I love being a part of a community, building a community, that feeling of connectedness and uh, just being a part of something bigger. Last night, the Halloween party, that was, like, that, like, leaving there made me feel more like, I mean, I was at a party, and we were pushing a, a, a dice around with a broom, and, but I left feeling like I had been part of church, like, that to me, that, um, giving of my time, giving of, you know, being silly for kids, you know, that sort of, um, I don't know, that kind of connection for me is where I feel God. That, you know, coming and sitting in church, being a part of these discussions, um, but more, more than anything, Monday nights, are where I feel church um, when we have potluck. That's, you know, sitting on Bob and Evie's uh, patio feels like a holy space for me because it is so much, you know, it's just where I have been able to be most authentically myself and share and and really get to know people. Um, you know, I, it's where I've connected with Steve the most. And then we run into each other at Don Nachos and sit outside and talk for half hour. You know, just, uh, I, that feeling of community is um, so precious to me that that's what keeps me coming back I guess that, that high that I'm always chasing, you know, wanting to be a part of. Uh, it just feels right and it feels, it reminds me of what it felt like to be um, a kid with my parents at church. That sort of feeling like the going and sitting in church, that wasn't what I liked. It was talking with everyone outside of church in the foyer afterwards and catching up in that, you know, just feeling of love and, and connectedness. That's what it is for me. Thank you, Christy. That's great. Language I use for that is, well, it's the kingdom of God, but beyond that, if you were to make it sound hierarchical, a kingdom of God. Yeah. Family of God. Yes, I want for myself, because I tend to overthink things, to be careful around the idea of what's the benefit. Because I feel like for myself, it's always been more of a journey of discovery than measurement. Mm. 
How does that journey feel? Hmm? How does that journey feel? Surprising, filled with grace, hurtful, uh, filled with loss. It's life. It doesn't always happen the way I want it. It doesn't always happen the way I imagine it. But I feel blessed anyway. Yeah, Marcelina. Uh, for me, the benefit is uh, that I can go to bed at night with a, a, at peace. Yeah. Uh, a sense of peace, of inner peace, that, um, that I've done my part, I've done what I could, I've done my best, all I could do, put it to rest, and try again tomorrow, do my best again tomorrow. And, and um, when I sit with myself, I can experience a sense of inner peace that surpasses all of the confusion and turmoil and darkness of the world that resources me and then allows me to go back out into the world. So I think that's the benefit is feeling that grace. And then there are times when serendipitous things happen, when the light has a particular quality and it feels like there's a presence in the room. Um, and that's magical and, and it's just uh, kind of gets my attention that, you know, there's something greater. There's a greater presence here. And that's, that's beautiful when that happens. Yeah. Well, he's always amazing when he speaks. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just when, just this is a little bit selfish, but the benefit um, that I was just thinking about was um, I have a lot of, a lot of, uh, I was going to say conflict, but a lot of my job is is riddled with a, with a lot of um, uh, really strong emotions, and it, and you can be in this very tense state. And when I get myself into a place where I'm meditating about kindness and gratitude, I am overcome with the kind of um, gratefulness and serenity that is a benefit. And that's just that is what I think of as the creator um, expectation for my energy is to be in that place of higher energy and positive and, um, and to recognize, keep going back to that instead of being hyped up with the things I have to deal with in my world. So in that way, it's just the benefit really of being able to be that person and when I show up in a space, hopefully I'm communicating um, positivity um, and blessings instead of the um, anger that um, is in our world. There, there's a little poem, God give me the serenity to serenity deal breath. with things, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that kind of reminded me of that. Of the things that, that I cannot deal with sometimes. Yeah. 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 And the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> and the wisdom so you know what's nice is here's a group of us that are thinking differently, that are trying to think differently, that are trying to love differently and understand God above and beyond what we all grew up with because like a lot of you, it's one of those things where I still have not found what I'm looking for, mm -hmm. but every time you guys are here and you're present, like as you all certainly are here, It's nice that we're all kind of in this together. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, 
It's not for me. It's not about that. It's about tomorrow. Or, or, or right after this, what I do an hour from now or tomorrow. Because if I put a lot of good tomorrows in a row, I'll get there. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. But I'm not worried about there of finding what I need. I just, just want to put the best tomorrow. And that to me, again, is, is that's God. You know, just a mindset of feeling. Um, that's what that is. Well, I, I'll wrap it up by saying, for me, um, it's probably the one thing that keeps me being a pastor and, and a Christian. Otherwise, there's so many other things that I would have just left this a long time ago. Um, but for me, and, and it kind of goes, when Ken brought up, like, our grandfathers, our grandparents couldn't conceive of stuff today. You know, we can't conceive of stuff in the future, and yet we're talking about this guy that left these messages 2,000 years ago. And I think those those things that were said 2,000 years ago resonate so powerfully still today if we just actually step into it. And I think for me, God is that interconnection. And, and really all Jesus is doing is trying to not just point us to that interconnection, but get us to experience it. And really what Jesus says is, we all feel that interconnection with the powers that be, the authorities in our lives, in our, our world, but what Jesus is saying is if you can experience that interconnection with the people on the margins that you've disregarded, then you are absolutely interconnected with everything. If you start there, then everything else really just follows. Mm -hmm. I don't think Jesus was trying to create a belief system. I think he was just trying to point people to this divine interconnection that we all experience with each other and starting with the people that we've kind of cast out and said we couldn't possibly be connected with them. Um, and this way of living truly sends our world into a better place, environmentally, humanly, etc. And it's 2,000 years old. I mean, but he's also talking about his Jewish faith, which is even older than that. And so this is something that's been with us for a long time, and we just keep kind of missing the message. So thank you, everybody. Thank I you appreciate too. it. We will see you all next Sunday. Yes.